So the National Worship Leader Conference is happening here in Nashville this year, May 7th through 9th. They're going to be doing some really cool things. Uh, There's going to be some panel discussions about the business of music within the church, leadership, songwriting. They're even doing one on podcasts, and I know a certain host who might be there. It's going to be an amazing conference. There's some wonderful speakers, incredible musical artists, and just a lot of great thinkers and people are going to be here, and you don't want to miss it. If you lead worship at church or you're involved in worship and worship leading, you need to be at the Worship Leader Conference here in Nashville, May 7th through 9th. For more information, go to worshipleader.com. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga. My guest today is Ian Cron. You might know about Ian Cron because he has done a lot of amazing things. He is an author. He is a minister. He uh, is an expert in the Enneagram, which we will talk about in this podcast. He's a songwriter. He's just done a a ton of things. And uh, I've just kind of met him through being friends with people in Nashville, like everybody else in this podcast. Um, But I think the first time we actually met was at a bowling alley. And I went up to him and I said, hey, we're friends with a lot of the same people. Let's be friends. And he said, okay. And um, there you go. Uh, I would like to also point out that uh, I was kind of in a hurry to get going in the interview. And I bring this sort of whole contraption of all these different cables and mics and things to set up. And uh, halfway through this conversation, I looked down and realized that the mic that I was talking into was not plugged in. Classic move, Andy. Classic move. So when you notice that I sound a little funny the first half of the interview, that's because it's coming through his mic on the other side of the room. I plugged it in, fixed it. I blushed for a little bit, and then we continued on. But it sounds fine. And more than anything, you're not listening to this to hear my wisdom. You're listening to hear Ian's wisdom, and there's a lot of it. And I know you're going to love this conversation with Ian. Um, Like we've been doing the last couple weeks on the podcast, if you stay tuned after uh, the pivot, there'll be a little bonus podcast uh, where I will talk about another one of the songs on my new album, The Painted Desert, which is only available to buy on Kickstarter. And it's doing really well. The campaign is rocking. And people have been saying really nice things, and that's been kind. So thank you all for that. Um, But that's not why you're here. You're here to hear this conversation with the incredible Ian Cron. The Pivot is brought to you by Blind Tiger Record Club. And you know this because I talk about it a lot, and I talk about it a lot because they're awesome. It's the only monthly vinyl subscription service that lets you choose the genre of music that you get. I'm a member, and I love every month getting that box in the mail. There's always the record and little extra goodies. They really take care of us. They're building something awesome. You know that vinyl is coming back. Don't let it come back without you. Blind Tiger Record Club is the perfect way to fill out your vinyl collection and be cooler than all your other friends. If you use the code THEPIVOT, you actually get the first month's subscription box half off. That's a $25.99 value for $12.99. That's a great deal. So go check them out, Blind Tiger Record Club. The Pivot is also brought to you by New College Franklin. 
New College Franklin is a four-year Christian liberal arts college in Franklin, Tennessee, dedicated to excellent academics in a rich community. They offer a unique opportunity to become part of that learning community that's focused on educating the whole person. For more, go to newcollegefranklin.org. Counseling degree. You're a very educated person. <laughs> <laughs> According to your bias. Yeah, right. All wasted on me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, we were, I met you because you had become friends with a couple other friends of mine, and then we met at a bowling lunch. Right, with Andy. Yes, and you go along his bowling lunch. And so I mainly know of you as an author. And I know that you are a, you know, like a varsity. <laughs> In fact, I, we were bowling together once, and you were as bad as I was. I mean, it was so <laughs> pathetic. The two of us could have, like, started the, like, the dunce club on the bowling lane, man. I have my own ball. I have my own shoes. I went every week for, like, three years, and my average was 106. Yeah. I know that feeling, man, but we were, I remember we were guttering quite a few balls. Very helpful to me to do that. <laughs> I'm glad I could be in solidarity with your mediocrity. And if you're going to be bad at something, let it be bowling. Right. <laughs> yep. Um, so, yeah, but I met you then and I knew because I read, either I had just read your book or because I met you. I think because I met you, I was like, that guy's cool. I'm going to read his book. And I read the one about your dad and the CIA, which is an amazing book and an amazing story, which I know you know and you're probably tired of telling. But, um, but you did, your dad was in the CIA and you figured it out. Well... It, you know, uh, it came to light when I was in high school. I didn't figure it out. It came to, it came to light when he was, um, he came up for a job in, uh, in Eastern Europe when I was in high school. And so we all had to be interviewed. I mean, they... You all did. Oh, yeah, because, you know, they have to make sure the family isn't crazy. You know, they don't want a family member who's a liability to somebody who's taking a significant post. Right, or who would embarrass them somehow? So we all had to be vetted, and um, that's. Well, I mean, we knew he did something odd. I mean, we knew it was off. You know, like he would. Tell you he did. Well, he was in the motion picture business in Europe and the Middle East, okay. and then, uh, but working at the same time in the intelligence services. I know. I, I know. Well, I mean, it was awesome. It, it was interesting. I'm not sure awesome is the word. Yeah, yeah. It looked better from a distance probably than it did up close, but you can discover that in the book. It's a great book title. It is. A, it's an interesting title. It's a book. Yeah, it is. It is. But all that to say, I read that book and loved it and I knew of you as an author, but did not know that you were a songwriter and that you were a priest. Right. Uh, so would you talk me through a little bit of, sort of your trajectory? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? How did you end up doing all those things? Yeah. Well, I, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is about 35 miles from Midtown Manhattan. Okay. So if you're a true Yankee, you would say I was a New Yorker. Uh, not, you know, if you were from Maine or New Hampshire, Vermont, you'd be like, yeah, that's a New Yorker, not a, not a true Yankee. But... Uh, and then I, I grew up the youngest of four kids in a, you know, a pretty difficult home, uh, 
went to Bowdoin College in Maine, in Brunswick, Maine, which is a small, one of these little small liberal arts colleges in the Northeast. And then uh, I went through a season, I worked for Young Life as a young guy. I went to grad school. I got a master's in counseling psychology. I um, became pastor of a church. You know, I founded a church and pastored it for 10 years. Um, I went to, did my doc, did doctoral work for two years at Fordham University, the Jesuit University of New York. Then I moved, wrote, wrote that book, Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and me, moved to Nashville um, after 10 years at this church, became an Episcopal priest uh, around that time. And then, you know, continued writing and speaking. And so I've had a, a portfolio life is how I would describe it. As a, so I was a, you know, I'm a songwriter, you know, songwriter, you know, I'm a author, a speaker, priest, spiritual director, you know, you know, I, yeah. and, and for a long time, I, I, I did feel like I was vocationally confused, you know, or suffering from some kind of uh, occupational ADHD. But what I realized, actually, I was driving across from San Antonio out to Lady Lodge to speak, and I was driving in the hill country, you know, and I, I had this sort of revelation at, at one point, which is all of those things that I did were in service to the single mission of, of really helping people enter into deeper conversation with the mystery of their own lives, spiritually and personally, and which was a great consolation to me to realize that all of those things, all of those fields of interest uh, were feeding the same pool. Mm. How old were you when you had that realization? I was in my 50s, <laughs> as I still am. But it, 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 you know, yeah, it took a while to figure it out. And I, I, don't, I don't think it hampered my work, but it was a relief to know that I wasn't, you know a jumble, some kind of a bouquet of, you know, odd, disparate, unrelated pieces. You know, the, if, I, mean, I imagine most of the time you're working, you're not actively thinking about the overarching story of your life. You're thinking, oh, yes, I am. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I have a lot of time on my own and I'm pretty self-reflective. So, uh, I mean, hopefully not self-absorbed, but I am self-reflective, and so that that sort of stuff would, you know, definitely get under my hood and you know make me make me wonder a little bit about what what is the errand upon which I've been sent here to do, right? Yeah. So when I began to realize that there was coherence in my vocation versus you know these fragments of interests or these you know whatever. It was a it was a great consolation to me. Yeah, has that changed how you approach the work you do? Well, I think it's given it a unifying vision that it it, it may not have had. It's less opaque to me. Um, I have some language I can put around it, which you know, language is very powerful, and, and you know that as a lyricist. I mean, you know, the if you can language the experience, it gives you some sense of not necessarily control or mastery, but of Realizing that your your life is not 
like an, uh, a grocery list of episodes that are disconnected from each other, but actually there's a flow and a meaning and a, a underneath the waterline of your life, there is some degree of, uh, of it all fitting together properly. That's a really great thought. So the first 30 years of your career, you're feeling, are you feeling disparate and scattered and like those things aren't connected? Yeah, I think there were moments like that. I mean, you know, having grown up in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is loaded with investment bankers and people whose career trajectories were a laser-focused straight line. They were just linear. They went to... Groton boarding school, then they went to Harvard, then they went to Stanford Business School, and then they went to Wall Street, and then they retired at 45, and it was just a straight shot. Uh, they were just committed to a particular path. And my path just seemed more circuitous than theirs. And so it often left me wondering, what is wrong with me? Now, when I moved to Nashville, I realized, oh, my people. <laughs> oh. Oh, my people, here you are. I realized you are not as odd as you think. Uh, and so, you know, community, you know, which is, you know, we, we understand ourselves socially, not in isolation, right? And so when I found myself in a social milieu that valued in some ways many of my interests, and it was, maybe that's why when I, it was only in more recent years that I realized, oh, I know what I do. Hmm. You know, now I know. Yeah. Your your family, your community back home. Did you feel like they questioned what you did? No, I, I no. In fact, m many of them valued it, but they would they would have said I was far more woo woo. <laughs> That's a more recent term I've come to love. You know, which is a little bit more. Um, oh, I don't know uh, what the word would be. It. it you know, I was I was a creative, and they, which isn't to say they weren't creative, but they were they were business people. Were they were professional, and they were business people, and they were corporate. I wasn't. I um, so I was a bit of an anomaly, and probably a curiosity to some, but in a way that wasn't off-putting. But you know, was uh, I did feel at times a little bit like I was on, on the Isle of Misfit Toys yeah. in that culture. And, and so when you passed through the church, you, you founded and passed through the church in that community. Yes. What kind of church was it? It's a non-denominational church. What made you decide to start? I mean, did you have a, like a, an MDiv? I do have, church? oh, I forgot that. Yes, I do have, I do have an MDiv <laughs> too. Yeah, I forgot that one. That, that's another one. I could have gone to school for the rest of my life. I love school. I could just stay in school for my whole life. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, that church I often describe as an unplanned pregnancy. Uh, there's a another artist friend of mine named Rob Mathis, who's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant musician, writer. So it was founded by two artists, and we did it by accident. We just started an evening service at this other little church one summer, and it just, by New England standards, blew up. You know, which means that you know. By Nashville standards, still a small church. But in New England, it's called a revival. Uh, you know, you get 800 people in a room in New England and people think, you know, that uh, there's been, like Jonathan Edwards has returned from the dead. But it, you know, it just actually grew underneath us until it evolved into a church. And the next thing I knew, I was sitting on top of one. Huh. 
That's got to be wild. It was wild. It was wild. Mm-hmm. And, and, and difficult because uh, I didn't know myself. Uh, I was learning myself as I was going along in that setting. And uh, what I didn't know was that, you know, I'm a really good jet rocket. But when that thing started to go into management or maintenance mode, uh, I I began to suffer, you know, significant altitude drops. Despite my best efforts to try and be something I wasn't, you know, which is a long haul maintainer. I was a planter, not a farmer. Does that that doesn't yeah. make much sense? But I, I I knew how to plant seeds. I just didn't know how to handle the manage a farm once it reached a certain size. Yeah. So is that church still there? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Thriving, much different than than when I was there, uh, in its flavor and character. But that's that's not a bad thing. I mean, it it you hope a church would evolve uh, into whatever it's supposed to become in its in its moment. And yeah. So, so have, have you been a priest before or since? Have you done pastoral work outside of that? Well, I've been a what's called adjunct clergy, uh, which means I'm a cheap date. Uh, sometimes in the Episcopal Church, that's called a non-stipendiary uh, clergy. That sort of fulfills some obligations to bishops and within the hierarchy and the structure of the church. Um, and now I'm a what's I mean, it's a highfalutin title, but I'm a scholar in residence at St. Augustine's here in in Nashville. So I I do I preach once a month and teach on Sunday mornings to classes and whatnot. So. That's, but that's the scope of what I do. I don't. I do very little, but it, it does keep me plugged into um, the community and into the broader church, which I, I think is important. If you're, you know, it's not good to have rogue priests. <laughs> you know, I've read about a few. Ask, yeah, just yeah. Uh, Luther was a, was one of the more famous ones. You know, you, it, it can lead to all kinds of problems for people. <laughs> Well, especially, I imagine it's good to have some kind of home base because you do travel quite a bit now. I do, yeah. Your memoir was your first book. You've said no, my that first one. book was a was a a novel titled Chasing Francis. Oh, so you wrote that one first. I wrote that first, okay. and then I wrote Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me, and then more recently, The Road Back to You. Yeah, which has seemed like that's been a pretty big shift in what you do, at least as far as you work with the Enneagram, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I've done uh, again. <laughs> I guess it's a mirror of my my own life. But you know, I've, I've been written a novel, and then you know, a memoir, and now a work of you know nonfiction. You know, uh, so I've been in different genres, uh, which drives publishers crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, I'm jazz to pop to you know. <laughs> you know, from John Coltrane to Beyonce, you know, it's like all over the map. They're like, could you figure out what bin you go in and stick in it uh, so we can build an audience? The of John Grisham and David. Exactly. Yeah, yeah no, I, again, no straight line, just lots yeah. of interests. I'm going to veer off into this world now. I've taken a couple Enneagram tests because I was on a tour bus with Joe Phillips. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. He sat us down. <laughs> yes. It's all about the Enneagram. And I was like, well, Okay, that's that seems very interesting. So, my question for you is, what is the enneagram? Right. And out of four, can you fix me? Yeah. Well, the first will be easy. Uh, first question will be easy, and the second will be more complicated. Um, the 
The Enneagram is an ancient personality typology or system of, maybe you could say a system of self-knowledge that teaches there are nine core personality types, one of which each of us gravitates toward and adopts in childhood as a way to cope and feel safe in the world. And each of those types has an underlying motivation that powerfully influences the way we think, act, and feel on a regular basis. I mean, in ways that are predictable and habitual, right? And, you know, so the beauty of it is, is that it, it helps us to live more awake versus half asleep uh, in the automatic patterns of our personality, our way of being in the world, if you will. So it has tremendous value in that regard. Um, I'd say it's also more of a spiritual instrument than a psychological, like psychometric, you know? It, yeah. it, it's uh, in the sense that it illuminates what's best about you and also what's in the shadow and what needs to be faced in order for you to live in a more generative way in the world, not in service solely to the ego's agenda. Gotcha. I mean, is the idea that it kind of helps you understand why you're doing the things you're doing? Is that sort of the idea? Yeah, I mean, it, it accounts for that, um, as well as revealing how oftentimes we unconsciously, really, because this stuff sets in very, very early in life, right, these patterns. Uh, it reveals how they are often really the ego's way of trying to get everybody else to organize their lives around our priorities. Hmm? And our way of, you know, carrying forth into adulthood things that helped us survive childhood and how when you continue to play that script out in adulthood, it's often very self-defeating and self-limiting. You know, that, that which... You know, whenever you use the tools of the past to solve problems of the present, mm-hmm. you know, and use childhood strategies to try and address adult issues, it doesn't end well. Um, so that's, again, just one of many gifts that I think the Enneagram can, can bring to people. Yeah. So you, have you studied this for a long time? Or, I mean, this book, like you said, it's nonfiction. I mean, it is, it's very in-depth on each of these nine types and sort of how you can use this self-knowledge. I first was introduced to the Enneagram in the 1990s. I was in graduate school doing a, a, a counseling degree mm-hmm. and I was at a retreat center and happened on Richard Rohr's book, The Enneagram, which he, you know, initially the first pass at it was probably in the early 90s. Went to some workshops, did some things with it, too many other things going on to do a deep dive. Then about six years ago, um, through a confluence of you know relationships and whatnot, I decided to take a deep plunge into that world. And the more I got in it, the more I realized, gee, you know, this could be really helpful to people in the, the sphere of my readership, right? Yeah. And um, I thought nobody's written about it. Uh, for uh, in this in sort of a more Christian milieu since 1999, and that there was a, a there was a great deal of chatter. People talked about it quite a bit, and I thought, wow, this is an opportunity to kind of 
corral some of those energies and and speak into it. And it actually the book's a primer, so it doesn't go terribly deep. I mean, it, it's one of the reasons I wrote it is because oh, there are so many content rich books about the Enneagram out there, but they're five hundred pages. Yeah, we've got a couple on the show. Yeah, and some of them are yeah, and they're very technical. And so unless you're a therapist or you want to quit your day job, you know, it's hard to dive in. So I thought we got to write one that's deep enough that if a person read it, they could move a needle in their relationships and their self-understanding. And if they chose not to go on, they'd still get a lot out of it. But if it was a, it could also be a gateway drug into a deeper engagement with the topic. So um, I, I'm, I'm pleased with, with where it's landed. Yeah. And you, so now you spend a lot of time speaking about that book. I do. Is that kind of the prim- the primary thing that you, when you're traveling at this point, is that kind of the primary thing that you're, you're speaking about? Or? Well, right now, I mean, the book's been out a year, so yeah, I mean, it's like working a record, right? You're, gotcha. you're just out okay. there playing that song, all those songs, you know, uh, and, and trying to get the word out uh, about it. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I everything from artist retreats, you know, at Lady recently, uh, mm-hmm. to corporate work, you know, yeah. with... Discovery Channel or Ramsey Solutions or you know yeah. so it it's sort of all over the map because it it, it plays in a, plays well in a lot of theaters yeah I know? bet so um, and it's you know it's I'll tell you what's great about it is going back to that idea of the mission of trying to help people enter into a deeper conversation with the mystery of their own lives right um, the good news is is that it allows me to do that and make a living at the same time. Yeah. You know, and gosh, the idea that you could actually get paid to do what, you know, you're supposed to do mm-hmm. you know, and not have to worry about, you know, gosh, my, can I keep the lights on? Yeah. Um, now this is, you know, in the world of writers and, you know, songwriters feel that way. You know, it's that constant, my gosh, I'm called to this, but I'm not sure I can... You, know, you can't you can't feed your kids the calling you know you <laughs> right so yeah, you know yeah. it's nice when it's working yeah so and i imagine do you, i mean you do some kind of group things i know you don't do you're not a counselor but you do kind of do like you said retreats or sometimes what did you say coffee coffee counseling you call it well coffee counseling is like informal you know, like yes, two days ago uh, I asked someone out for for coffee, and we ended up talking about their wanting to know their enneagram type and trying to figure out the mystery of their own lives. I imagine that every conversation that right an now, enneagram yes. expert, quote unquote, has. Yeah. Is, so tell me why I do this. <laughs> yeah. When people ask me what I do on airplanes, I put the my headphones on and definitely go into another <laughs> universe, and I don't want to tell them, you know, because otherwise I'll be figuring out their enneagram type with them yeah. for two hours. But I mean, it's deeply interesting because we all. I think we all are curious about both why why we have you know why we do the things we do, how we can be better versions of ourselves. I mean, all those sorts of questions. Which the Enneagram is a great tool for helping you, obviously, enter into those conversations. Um, you know, I, I'm particularly interested in how knowing that kind of stuff about you about yourself can help you as you're navigating changes and as even as you know whether they're whether they're professional changes or family health you know just life happens around you the way that you the way that you live today is not the way that you have to live tomorrow and how do you navigate that how does knowing kind of yourself in that way better equip you to live 
through those changes. Mm. Well, there's a predictive quality to the Enneagram, right? So if you can understand what your habitual patterns have been through life, right? Mm. You'll know as you enter into times of stress or transition, I know where I go when this happens. Mm? Mm -hmm. And so I can prepare and I can monitor uh, where my thoughts, feelings, and actions are going. So I'm not living in reactivity all the time, but I'm living responsively. And those are two very different qualities of life. Incredibly different. Yeah. Most people, particularly in our culture now, it's so every time you turn on the news, it's very apparent. Or go look at a Twitter feed or a Facebook <laughs> feed. We live in a world of terrible reactivity where people are just shooting from the lip constantly. Yeah. I mean, people aren't even thinking before ideas and words are flying out of their opinions or flying out of their mouths or actions are taken without any thought mm -hmm. as to what the uh, consequences might be, yeah. right? And, you know, I, I think we're called, I think wisdom is to say, I live responsively. I know myself well enough that um, I can predict with the help of instruments like the Enneagram, among others, right, mm -hmm. that... You know, I have to watch out for this in these moments. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I some people will lapse into melancholy. Some people will lapse into some types will lapse into you know other traps. There are traps in each of these types, and there are traps in all of our lives. And so, if you know what the traps are, you don't have to fall down the hole, or yeah. not as many of them. Yeah, I mean, I I've found that in my own experience. Like I said, I. I'm a four, I think. I've taken the test, which you said don't the, don't always trust the test. But. Right. Yeah, they're only right about maybe you know, 60% of the time. Really? Yeah, they're all self-report assessments. It doesn't matter whether it's strength finders or the DISC or the Myers-Briggs, right? All these tests, they can't really determine whether or not you are self-aware enough to answer the questions accurately <laughs> yeah, or not, right? You know, true. so you could be drunk, you could be doing it with your girlfriend, staring over your shoulder and trying to, you know, yeah. cast yourself in a light that isn't, re or you may end up, you know, painting a portrait of who you'd like to think you are versus mm -hmm. the person you actually are. So there's a lot of places that a self-report assessment can go off the rails and give you a, a false report. Yeah. My wife, she's tried to take the test a few times. She's like, I just can't ever decide. And then everybody goes, well, that's because you're a six. Well, that's a, yeah, well, you know, people can, you know, weaponize a small amount of knowledge about the Enneagram and, you know, use it in ways that I don't think are particularly helpful to other people on their journey toward understanding themselves. Yeah. Uh, Whenever people, people say, oh, you're this or you're that, I'm like, information about anything. <laughs> yeah, don't presume to know all the facts, especially yeah. when, if, you know, if you're a mystery to yourself, trust me, you're a, you're a lot more of a mystery to other people, so they shouldn't presume to think they know what's going on inside that, that pool of, that stew of mess inside your head. Yeah, so. it's like a, like a college-age Calvinist. Yes, exactly, <laughs> right. And, and, uh, yeah, and it has all the charm of one, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I do know when I kind of figured out, okay, I'm a four and the root, forget, I'm going to mess this all up because I am not the expert. But kind of. Should I start running the meter right now on this? If yeah. This, if, are we going no, to a counseling yeah. time? Because I just, I just want to turn on my time, my stopwatch. <laughs> sure. Um, but the, the, the root, whatever it's called, 
is like envy, right? There's kind of a so there the unconscious motivation that drives the way that fours, which are called the individualists or the romantics. Mm-hmm. The way they think, feel, and act, the way they see the world uh, and interact with the world, uh, that motivation is the need to, really a compulsive need, to feel special and unique. They feel that they have a missing piece, some kind of tragic flaw. They can't actually quite name what it is. It's just a vague intuition that there's something a little off about me that doesn't allow me to experience that belongingness, that sense of, I'm part of the community. It's always this sense that, um, man, there's just something not right. There's something fundamentally uh, or even unredeemably deficient Hmm. about me that I have to compensate for by being special and unique. And, you know, that can take an infinite number of forms or expressions uh, depending on the person. So... Um, the passion, which is what you're referring to, which in each number has, or each type has a passion, sometimes called a deadly sin. Okay, that's the question, yeah. So the deadly sin of the four is envy because they're always looking at other people and thinking and comparing themselves constantly Mm -hmm. and thinking to themselves, gosh, you know, that person seems just to have an easier life than I do. They, They just seem to be more at ease in the world. And so what fours envy is other people's normalcy and happiness what they perceive to be their normalcy and happiness, that in contrast to theirs um, just doesn't, you know, seems better to them. They always feel like they got their nose pressed against the glass looking in at life's Mm. party. And so the idea of the Enneagram being that everybody, whatever your quote-unquote number is, you've got that that under-seated so every number has an unconscious motivation, right? There are things, there are hidden forces in our life right? mm-hmm. that if they're not brought to consciousness will have autonomy and can rule all kinds of things, you know, which is why you can look back on the history of your life, look in the rearview mirror and you'll see repeating patterns of the same dang thing that yeah. repeatedly has tripped you up. You know, it's like, why has every relationship gone in this direction? Why has every job gone in this direction? Why do I habitually or predictably feel and think and feel in ways that I can't seem to get a handle on? And yeah. they appear in different disguises, you know, at times, and yet they are the same root source somehow. And uh, so, like for a for a one, the the deadly sin of the passion, right, would be anger. For twos, it, you know. Uh, it yeah, going on and on, right? You, sure. Yeah, I mean, I can go through the whole list, but it. it but know, it's, it's in the book, right? It is. So, <laughs> twos are pride, threes are deceit, fours are envy, fives, you know, are avarice, uh, mm. and so forth. It, and they are uncannily accurate. Yeah. Now they're not. I'm, I'm always trying to talk people off the ledge of the enneagram because, in in some ways, I, I just keep reminding people who get all foamy-mouthed about it in the beginning. Like, oh my gosh, this explains everything. And I go, oh no, 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 it doesn't. It really doesn't. Um, but it is a wonderful vestibule and a wonderful entryway into that conversation yeah. about who you are. But yeah. it's certainly not, you know, it ain't perfect. Yeah, but I mean, it does, yeah, but it is good to have tools to help understand that stuff. I mean, it's Right. The question isn't, I mean, I think in a lot of ways... 
you have to look at any model, right? Um, whether it's in economics or in psychology or so, it doesn't matter, right? You have to look at any model uh, and and ask yourself the question: not so much is it true that that I mean, you know, it, mm-hmm. but more is is it useful? And it, if something's true enough, hmm, you know, it's not just vaguely truish. You know, it's it really is true enough. Uh, then the question is, well, if it's useful, then it's good. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just yeah. it just needs to be true enough to work with. Hmm. That's cool. So right now you're in a phase of life where you're kind of you're spending a lot of time talking about this, talking about the book that you've written, and you wrote it with somebody else, right? Yeah, I had a uh, contributing author with me, yeah, Suzanne Stabile. Yeah, and you guys have your own podcast, which is great. Well, we have we had a podcast called "The Road Back to You," right? Mm-hmm. Oh, is it done? Yeah, it was a promotional asset. Ran maybe twenty six episodes, and now I have a, um, a sort of a continuation of that podcast. It's got a different flavor, but it, it's called Typology. Oh, okay, gotcha. That's great. What's next for you? I mean, are you kind of in the writing phase for another book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm in the writing phase for another book. I have you know, all kinds of related projects going on at mm-hmm. the same time. Um, lots of speaking, although I'm getting to a, you know, I'm getting road weary, you know, because it's it hasn't been just this year. It's been five or six years of yeah. lots and lots of travel, but really intense in the last year. And uh, I find that what's happening is is that I'm running around telling people to live, or not telling, but but suggesting to people that there's a way to live in the world that's, uh, you know, a healthy holistic way of being in the world, but I'm not doing it because I'm running around <laughs> telling them about it. Yeah, I don't you know, know what it's that's like, like at all. So yeah. it's all very misaligned, uh, <laughs> creating a great deal of inter- internal dissonance that I'm just in the process now of trying to figure out how to stay at home more than be on the road. Yeah, that's good. You're at this point now, you've got, I forget how you said it, but I loved it. It was some sort of an aligned sense of, you didn't use the word calling, which I thought was telling, but how you've descri- how you've seen the work that you've been put on the earth to do has all kind of been pursuing one agenda. And is the Enneagram, do you think, is that with you for the rest of your of the rest of this journey? Is this a season that you're kind of in? Who's to say? I mean, as a friend of mine says, awaiting further light. You know, yeah. I mean, and I'm perfectly comfortable not knowing. You know, I, I feel like Right now, this is what I'm supposed to get up and do every day. Yeah. And where it leads, nobody knows. You know, if if someone wants to ask, I think it was the Dalai Lama, like, you know, what summarize Buddhism in as brief a way as possible? And he said, everything changes. And I thought, well, that's a universe. That ain't just Buddhism. That's just a perennial universal truth. Yeah, everything changes, and so you have to keep that. You know that. That wild card in your head all the time so you don't grip too tightly on any moment. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Man, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ian. I'm glad that uh, your mic was plugged in because you had great things to say. If you guys are interested in Ian and his work with the Enneagram, uh, you can find... Well, you can find everything about Ian, his books, his speaking schedule. Uh, He's got a couple podcasts about the Enneagram, and you can find that all at iancron.com. That's I-A-N-C-R-O-N. Thank you guys so much for listening to The Pivot. So glad to have you here. Thanks for all the support. 
the downloads and the reviews keep coming and it's just great. So thanks for letting me do this and uh, I'm, I hope that it continues to be helpful to you in your journey. So yeah, that's it for us today. Stick around to hear about another song from the Painted Desert. Now go do something awesome. Welcome to the Painted Desert. This is where I talk about a song from my new album, The Painted Desert, in hopes of getting people interested in listening to it. And that is my living. So thank you for that. Uh, the song that I'm going to talk about today is called Worry. It's very short. Um, I had originally written a really heavy-handed thing on the piano uh, that had some of the same lyrics, but it was the, it had the f- same first verse and it it was this idea but it was just the vibe was wrong and it was bombastic and I didn't like it but I I knew that um I knew that I wanted to talk about this talk about worry uh to myself cuz this is a song that is uh written for me so the friend that I'm talking to is is myself um but I think it's probably relatable to anybody. And that's because I worry a lot. And I think a lot of us do. But it's not like that helps. It's not like me worrying about things gets the bills paid or crosses things off the to-do list or is a good husband to my wife. It's not like worry is a good father to my children. But I still spend a lot of time doing it. And I don't want that. That's not the that's not the kind of person I want to be. And that's not the kind of life that I want to live. And I want to trust that God is taking care of me. But often I don't. And I, uh, I will say that. But then I will act in all sorts of different ways. Like, I have to take care of this. I have to fix this. And the truth is that in most circumstances in my life, I can't. I mean, I can work hard, I can do what I say I'm going to do, but it's not going to be enough. And uh, so this song's about that. Um, It's just kind of a meditation, and it's real simple. I had this really neat experience with this song. Uh, I went out on a lake with my friend Grant to film me playing these songs in a boat. Um, that's when I thought the record was not going to be called Desert, but something about water. Whoops. Um, but we went out on this beautiful fall day on the lake, and I, I I played these songs, and he filmed it, and I started to sing this song, and a guy was hiking, and he walked out of the woods and stood on the shore, and he just stood there, and I played the song, and after it was done, he goes, Hey, what's your name? said, Andy, or Andrew, (laughs) even I don't know what to call myself. And he said, how do I find you, your music? I said, I like Andy.com. And then he disappeared. And the next day I got uh, a message from him. And he said, man, that 
is exactly the song I needed to hear. I was just walking through the woods, just kind of freaking out, and I just needed to hear that. And I mean, how amazing is that? It was a really neat thing. And um, turns out that guy's name is Jeremy, and he writes awesome songs, and I've been able to hear them, and that's so fun. Um, but anyway, I'm rambling now. The point is that um, this song that's very much for me, I think, is for everybody. And um, I have listened to this song more than I've probably listened listened to any song I have ever done in my career. I just put it on because I keep needing to be reminded daily uh, of what this song is about. And um, yeah, it's really short and there's sort of an instrumental at the beginning and at the end because uh, I really wanted it to be pretty. And so I tried my hardest to make it pretty. And I hope that you like it. This is a song called Worry. And keep pretending that we trust the hand of God 